Hello, and welcome to The Money Movement. Today, we are joined by Joseph Thompson, who's the CEO and co-founder of AidTech, a firm that is at the cutting edge of using crypto and blockchain for corruption-resistant, transparent, and efficient and accessible aid distribution around the world, something that I think holds enormous promise. So we're going to dig in on that. I'm also very pleased to be joined as co-host by Dante Desparte, Chief Strategy Officer and Head of Global Policy here at Circle. Welcome, gentlemen. Jeremy, great to be here. Appreciate the opportunity to speak with yourself and Dante. Thank you. Absolutely. I may kick things off and Dante and I, I think we'll kind of navigate this conversation with you. Maybe just to start, it'd be really wonderful for our listeners to hear a little bit of your story. And you know, how did you kind of arrive at the problem that you're working on now? And kind of what was that inspiration, mission, kind of what brought you there? And then we can kind of dive into a little bit more of the what and how as we explore this theme. Yeah, sure. It's it's a bit of a crazy story and it started somewhere you wouldn't expect. So believe it or not, the idea or the concept for ATEC originated in the Sahara Desert, believe it or not, of all places. So it was in 2009, I was running an event. I raised money for charity. It was six marathons and six days in the Sahara Desert, raised over $100,000, ran the events. The money went to an organization, but there was no transparency in where that money actually went tried to follow up, see what was the impact of that money. So my background's in banking and telco. I don't have a humanitarian background at all. But after the event, trying to understand where the money has gone and where it had been used, absolutely no idea. So that was 2009. And then it was really 2013, 2014, where I started getting into blockchain. I was studying a master's in digital currencies. And we had the idea, myself and a co-founder, was if Google's a search engine, we wanted to build a transparency engine, right? So how can you have transparency on the flow of funds for crypto, for fiat, international aid, welfare, federal aid disbursements? So we really realized at this junction to individualize payments and to add layers of transparency across what, you know, blockchain and what it could become, you had to link it to an individual. So, so that's kind of the background of the story of ATEC was born essentially by mistake in the Sahara Desert, trying to understand where you know donations go, what's the impact, how can you involve community and, and people have confidence in, in where their money's actually going. So that was that. And then in December 2015, we became the first company in the world to deliver international aid to Syrian refugees on the border with Lebanon and Syria. And there we distributed, I think it was like $10,000 to 500 Syrian refugees, but every transaction could only happen once. So we were able to prove that and we had some fraudulent, attempted fraudulent transactions that actually just didn't happen. So then we were onto a winner going, okay, if we can link payments to an individual, we can create this tamper-resistant technology or use this tamper-resistant technology to make sure money goes where it's supposed to go. So that was kind of the pilot of how it started. And where we uh, we created ATEC from. That's awesome. And maybe just at a high level, kind of where is ATEC today? Where are you in terms of realizing that mission and vision? Yeah, so right now, we've been growing quite well over the last number of years. We're uh, raising our Series B rounds. Hopefully you guys are coming in, which is fantastic. 
And we have a couple of big contracts on the table. We're doing a, a large project with Women's World Banking in Philippines at the moment using USDC. We're building on the Algorand blockchain. We've got, and there's a partnership there for 2 million users, which is really cool. And then the big opportunity we have is actually in the US. Uh, we're working with two large clients. One's called St. Vincent de Paul, Disaster Relief. Another one is National BOAD, which is National Volunteer Active in Disaster Organization. And essentially what they do is they deliver federal money to people whose houses have been hit by natural disasters. Currently, it's a very laborious situation for people to put claims in, to get verified, to prove their identity. And between these two organizations, they have about 10 million volunteers as well, which I can explain later on that we see a huge, huge opportunity in actually pulling together people's donations, people actually allocating time and using this potentially being rewarded in the future. So it's what we're really focusing on is the non-crypto natives, people who want transparency, people who are donating time, donating money, but not really getting rewarded for it. So we think it's a huge opportunity to actually have cryptocurrencies as a, as a massive, a massive player going forward. So Southeast Asia and the US are, are our focus right now, uh, US being the biggest opportunity. And uh, Joseph, uh, great to see you on air. And uh, Jeremy, great to join you on this episode and be able to ask the hard questions this time around. So I think when you think about aid and development and sort of the humanitarian uses of blockchain and digital currencies, there are a number of skeptics around the world who say, you know, these solutions need a couple of other technologies and capabilities to be in place before you could really mobilize. For example, we have a world with a billion people with no form of national identity. So how do you safely extend the perimeter of payments if you can't solve for that? You need clearly some degree of internet connectivity. Otherwise, you know, how do you reach last mile communities? And then thirdly, you need to have this kind of digital wallet ecosystem and the software and hardware ecosystem, if you will, in place. Aid tech is clearly at the very frontier of, of not only looking very deeply at those problems, but to turning the, the kind of narrative on its head and, and looking at them as opportunities. It'd be great, I think, for the listeners, uh, Joseph, to hear your view of, of that assessment. Is the skeptic's view right? Or can we, in fact, turn the arc of financial inclusion on its head and use these technologies as part of that base layer of connectivity? Yeah, it's, it's a big question. So I'm going to try to get through it. And if I forget any part, just remind me. So don't worry, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the identity part, if, if you ask me what ATEC does, I'd say at the core of what we do is merge identity and payments. That's what we do. So I'm very fortunate to be the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal Pioneer for Blockchain Globally and the Schwab Foundation Social Entrepreneur of the Year. And, and the reason kind of we've got these awards, well, you know, I'll give the credit to my team. They do all the hard work building, right? So, but what we focused on is you need to merge identity with payments to the individual, right? So sustainable development goal 16.9 says everybody should have a legal ID by 2030. My fear looking forward is if you, a person doesn't have an identity, you're going to be excluded from web 2.0 and they're going to be excluded from web 3.0, right? So the way we view it is it should be privacy by design. People should own and control their own data going forward. And obviously in different countries, you're going to have different KYC levels and so on. You can have tiered KYC. So for give you an example of a project that was a really difficult project to do, but if you Google the first baby born on the blockchain, that was a project that we did in partnership with the German governments 
and the large NGO in Tanzania. And essentially what the problem that we were trying to solve there is when somebody is born, they should have a birth certificate, but in the developing world, that may not be the case. So being able to give the mothers a digital identity and linking that identity to the child, that mother is able to actually get the right medicine, um, the right tablets, blood tests, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. We don't know who the end user is. We don't get that data. And in the situation where we're working in, in Tanzania, there was not internet connectivity, right? So we actually had plastic QR card, uh, sorry, a plastic card with a QR code on it, right? So the woman was able to verify her identity with a PIN, and then the transactions were connected on chain when there was brought back in connectivity. If the mother couldn't provide her PIN, she wouldn't get access to it. But then the doctors and the NGOs were able to see what medicine was actually for that person, for that woman. A great use case or an example of this was one of the hemoglobin machines for actually measuring the blood of the pregnant woman was broken. So all the outputs from this machine was completely incorrect. So the women were being given the wrong medicine the whole way. So being able to verify using a proven identity that the woman controlled, she was able to actually show I'm due this medicine. This is my track record of actually going for visits and so on. And that was completely in control of the mothers. So even in low connectivity or no connectivity, we're still able to show that an on-chain blockchain identity was being was could be used properly here for a woman collecting data for her, not collecting data, but verifying that she needed medicine, her child needed medicine, and so on. So that was kind of an example of how we viewed identity as the base component, regardless of the technology, because these end users don't care about this technology at the end of the day. It needs to benefit them and needs to have some beneficial use for them. And essentially, we're just using digital assets to represent their hospital visits, their medicine, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of an example of how you can use your identity owned by the end user. And then if you take that, move that forward, then you connect into payment rails, right? So traditional fiat payment rails, what's the KYC for onboarding for a person to get a bank account, even the basic bank account? And then having a wallet. Our vision for the future is a person should own their own data going forward, right? So a wallet should be interoperable, multi-chain, but most importantly, a person can carry their own credentials. And what we mean by credentials are verified credentials that, for example, if, if I'm approved by this doctor or this hospital or, or in the US, if I'm approved by this NGO for volunteering my time, I can use that credential and sign up for another example, NGO or a voluntary organization. So a person is always in control of their own data, but it has to be, in our opinion, mobile and wallet-based for a person to build that data credit profile. Essentially, they're building a social impact profile that they can move. So if you see people in five or 10 years, you know they should be able to take your data from the real world, bring it into the metaverse, have a safe space where your reputation is earned, it's not bought. And that's how we see things going moving forward in the future. But it all goes back to a person having the baseline identity that they should be in control of. And then that connects it to different payment rails, whether it be crypto or fiat. I want to ladder off that, Joseph. We spend a lot of time thinking about decentralized identity. And I remember you know, very well when we were getting started with Circle now almost nine years ago, when I looked at blockchains, right, the thing that immediately occurred to me, especially when thinking about the ideas of like an extensible blockchain where you could extend it with sort of unique forms of assets and data and then you know, programmability through smart contracts, you know, these were ideas very early on. It struck me that this sort of could solve two problems. One, 
was there were kind of a couple of missing layers of the internet. One was money and the other was identity. And they're, and they're very tied together. As we know, they're, they're in, they're deeply tied together, but, you know, attempts to solve the problem of decentralized identity on blockchains have largely eluded us. Meaning there are absolutely, you know, efforts out there, including, I think some, some really interesting work that you guys have done. I think the kind of question we're asking is, can we see, standards emerge that are not tied to any specific blockchain, that are not tied to any specific crypto wallet implementation, but which could be supported by any kind of wallet that would allow for, you know, known issuers, like kind of verified issuers of identities, like financial institutions, healthcare institutions, others, to kind of create identity tokens that then people could take with them, right? And store them in their self-custody or store them with a custodian and then wouldn't have to give out all their personal information, but could just kind of have a cryptographic proof to another app or another service or whatnot that they're a valid individual. And then, but not just proving that they've been KYC'd, but also being able to kind of cryptographically prove other claims about their identity. I'm from this location, I'm of this age, I have this credit score or, or what have you. But being able to kind of do that on top of crypto native primitives that could work that you know ecosystems could build around. I'm curious, you know, and this is an area of, of very significant interest for us. And you know, when we think about stable coins like USDC, you know, we envision that as something that can be used for any kind of payment, whether it's, you know, uh, a micropayment at a digital vending machine, uh, so to speak, or a large-scale transaction supporting a, a, a major, you know, international financial trade, or everything in between. When you think about the ideal world for identity, where we're not creating more honeypots of data, where we're not creating new centralized endpoints, but where people really are in control, what does that look like to you? How do you see that? problem being solved? Because clearly, if there can be standards around this, it could unlock a tremendous amount of, of value in terms of the use cases that you're really committed to making happen. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And it's something that we think about and talk about you know, a lot of the time with our clients, even with our investors to look at this going forward. So I'm on two trains of thought here. One is a lot of effort has gone into identity solutions and blockchain over the last number of years. But I think people have built identity solutions for the sake of building identity solutions without actually building identity solutions to solve identity problems, right? So I don't think there's been enough good use cases in, across all blockchains of how identity could be used. And in a way, some identity solutions are actually trying to create vendor lock-in as opposed to making you have your identity go across multi-chain. So that's kind of one criticism I have of the different identity plays going forward. Basically, not to make the same mistakes that were made in Web 2.0 for trying to build a Web 3.0 world. In terms of identity, I've, we've looked at multiple chains, we've tested and piloted on different chains throughout, throughout the years. It's become very apparent to us that selective disclosure is going to be very important. So that's to be able to prove a certain amount of information about yourself, either it be your name or possibly approved, verified wallet address, right? That holds multiple credentials. Mm -hmm. So in the future, we see this going forward. So you, you obviously have your W3C standards body and nearly every blockchain has their own W3C approved um, method, right? So we're working very closely with the guys at Algorand. We really like the Algorand blockchain. 
and we've just helped them build their first identity methods, the ID algo. But our view for that is to be open multi-chain across the future. So for the benefit of the user, they should be able to take their data with them on whatever chain that they want, right? So in the future, we see, okay, if you have a verified identity, you have a wallet, you don't have to release all that information about what you've done or your transactional history, but it's proven, it's trusted, a pseudo-anonymous profile. That's how we would actually see it going right. forward. We really like the idea of if you go into the metaverse, you mint your identity as an NFT that is unique to you. You can't sell it going forward. So you actually earn and build reputation. So you earn and build reputation instead of buying a reputation, right? So if we compare this to, say, gaming, if you're a gamer online and you're at the top of the table, if you stop playing, you drop down. You can't just buy more kudos to get back up there at the top. So Taking what's worked successfully, appointing that to an individual who may have a trusted credit history, even in crypto, not even in the traditional fiat world, where their identity shows that they've taken out loans, they've provided liquidity for certain pools, it's all trusted, it's all verified, that person's then building a, a social reputation. They should decide if it's privacy by default or if they want to release that information to financial institutions and so on. That's how we see a perfect world going forward, that the user is actually in control of what they're doing here as opposed to a gatekeeper telling them what they need to share. But we, we really believe in selective disclosure is going to be very, very important going forward and zero knowledge proofs, people releasing what information that they want to release. Yeah, That's how we view it and that's what we're looking to build towards. So in the US, as we're building with our um, this wallet with our clients, our clients, for example, they had 48 million hours of volunteered hours last year in the US. They've 9.9 million volunteers, but they've no way to track it. Everything is once off instead of recurring. So if they were able to have a wallet where they have created the credential, a verified credential for the end user, yeah. that user doesn't need to go through the whole onboarding KYC process across different organizations. Totally. And then even with corporates, this is what I think is really interesting that individuals can actually prove to their employers, hey, I've done X amount of hours volunteering, this could help me in my career internally in this organization. And I think you're pushing it towards employers to say, okay, we have to trust these trusted credentials, these trusted data points that are owned by our employees, although it may be outside of work. Uh, so we see a big emergence of payments, credibility, re social reputation linked to an individual. Yeah, I think that is spot on and very consistent with what we hope to see. We're looking at the, at the problem of how can an individual prove to a protocol that they're a verified individual or prove certain attributes about themselves to a protocol? I mean, DeFi itself is market infrastructure that exists in protocols. But to utilize that, you know, I think ultimately people want to be able to, to know that they're known actors, right? So whether it be games and NFTs or DeFi or, uh, you know, corruption-resistant, transparent, a distribution, right? All of these really require these building blocks. So lots of exciting stuff happening there and, and stay tuned as we're hoping to make a big contribution to some of the problems in this space in the near future as well. I want to shift a little bit to stablecoins themselves. I know from the work that you guys have done, you know, you've supported traditional fiat, traditional fiat instrument, fiat, you know, virtual cards, lots of different things that could be useful to people. Maybe talk a little bit about your kind of journey into using stable coins, USDC, kind of where you are with that. And what do you see as the biggest impediments to that being a 
really a preferred medium of exchange for the ultimate recipients of aid, right? Because the problem is it might be efficient to go from uh, someone who's got some fiat, tokenize it, get it out into someone who's got a digital wallet, but making that kind of useful on a day-to-day basis, how far do you think we are from, at least in the in the markets that you're serving, how far are we from you know, people staying in stable coins as, the, as their stored value and, and medium of exchange? Yeah, it's something we're building right now for a wallet. We call it global wallet solution. We're building this with, with the guys at Algorand and Women's World Banking. And this goes live in, I think, April time. Don't quote me on that, but we're looking at April time. So at the Genesis, well, we decided to build this. We, we did a project last year, to give you some background on it, with uh, Save the Children and the Asian Development Bank in the Philippines. And that project there was in an area called Marawi. And in Marawi, there was some Islamic insurgency over the last number of years. So it was difficult for our partners and clients to onboard people and know where the money was going to the right person. So we did quite a successful project there. Microsoft were involved as well, Microsoft and philanthropy. And it turned out that if we were providing a wallet where it's somebody would onboard themselves, they self-provision themselves, they still need to get verified. That was the ID piece. Fine, we're playing within the, the reams of... Of regulation there topping up a person directly with fiat okay we can do that on the payments rail within within the philippines but then if we want to give people more ability to have access to more financial products so the example of what we're building right now is if a person receives or holds algo they can stake right so focusing on on families to take up micro insurance so insurance is not something that you will do every day or even once to do or even remember. You do it once a year in your car insurance, or your house insurance, right? So if we were able to let people have a savings wallet receiving algo, they could actually stake that. And they get a notification to say, hey, you save 5 or $10 this month to do what you want. Here we can pull in the insurance company where a person is using the cryptocurrency staking and the rewards are paying for their insurance policy and, and that solves that purpose there fantastic well fees end users own their own data but you still have the element especially in southeast asia where people want to have us dollars or the equivalent of us dollars in their wallet so mm-hmm. they have the philippine peso they have algo to do their DeFi or their, their savings but they also want to have uh, us dollars as well and not sending money or receiving money or actually sending money in country so when we were looking at the stable coins, uh, different stable coins, and we saw that you guys obviously are, are working closely with Algorand, that made a lot of sense for us, right? So we didn't have to go recreate everything from scratch. The ability for a person to have one wallet with three different payment mechanisms, and they're actually four. So you've Philippine Peso, potentially Algorand, USDC, and the local fiat banking rails that they have in the country. We interviewed uh, on the first round, we interviewed about 60 odd people to get their feedback and their thoughts. And what would this mean having these different currencies? And it turns out Philippine pesos, they need for 7-Elevens, taking money out of pawn shops, which is a big thing in the Philippines. Secondly, it was if there was a way that their money could actually work for them. So staking on a cryptocurrency was great. And third of all, everything is denominated in USD, right? So that's what people know. That's the value people understand. And it doesn't have that, obviously, that uh, fluctuation in the price. So everything would stay the same for the person. That's why we decided to actually build a, a wallet identity here and you have different payment levels on top. It gives the person the ability to save, trade internationally, sending money or receiving money from family members abroad, whether it be the US, Singapore, Dubai, and then introducing them to, to cryptocurrencies in a way of not, I wouldn't say speculating 
but more so for savings, right? So we know there's a lot of people speculating cryptocurrencies and that's fine. But the users that we're working with are non-crypto natives. So you have to give them the incentive to actually use it in the first place. Uh, and what really interested people was I can have this wallet, I can trade internationally at a super low cost, super cheap cost where I don't have to go to high fee remittance shops where people would actually queue up on a Saturday to receive or cash out money and so on. So the ability to have that that stable coin as USDC within the wallet was a massive, massive, or is a massive benefit. And that's what we're literally designing with our end users as we um, as we speak with them right now. And also in the US, the way we're building what we're calling a volunteer to earn, where people can actually get rewarded for volunteering their time. If you look at, I think, voluntary philanthropy globally is 2.3 trillion. 80% of that is time-based and people don't get rewarded for their time, right? So you could almost look at volunteering as a basic attention token in some sense. That's great in the wallet, but people want to cash out, right? So if they don't want the volatility, they're going to need to be able to cash out and say USDC. And then if you have a, a traditional fiat payment rail, such as, as Visa, a person's getting rewarded for what they're doing anyway, and now they can actually spend that at their local stores anyway. There's a Visa endpoint, for example. So having USDC and as a, as a stable coin within our sphere of what we do and what we're building is massively important. We probably underestimated it because we're so focused on the identity and the crypto piece, but having that, that stable coin payments layer there that we can say build on, on Algorand or any other chains in the future is really important to be, and I say we probably underestimated at the start. So that's just two examples of how we've integrated why it's so important. That's tremendous. Joseph, I mean, you've related your kind of remarks throughout uh, to the sustainable development goals. And, you know, the first is to eradicate extreme poverty, but later the SDGs describe this call to action on reducing remittance costs from the global average of 7% to 3%. And then so many of the examples you described, uh, you know, responses in the Philippines and elsewhere can potentially tap the large diaspora populations. And yet, we see that not only is there limited competition in how money moves across traditional rails across borders, how do you see that ability to make that connectivity more deliberate, especially when there is a humanitarian response? We have a typhoon response underway, for example, right now in the Philippines. We have, of course, this, this dire, dire humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. And so much of the way humanitarian aid moves today, the norm is pallets of physical cash, which are like a honeypot for corruption, bribery and fraud. What do we need to do and what sort of coalitions do we need to have in place where the technology is there and all other conditions are equal? Is it just a lack of will? What's the missing link at the policy level to sort of light up the planet with fast corruption resistant aid and aid and development corridors or relief corridors for moving money? A great question. I don't want to say anything to offend anybody in any sense. <laughs> <laughs> right, but the, the response is, if you look at a European response, is very different to a US response, right? So a lot of these things, it's people want to do well, but the policy is not coordinated on an international level, and, and people have their own self-interest and so on. So, and again, it goes to if a person doesn't have an identity, the transaction fees become a lot higher, either it be remittances or, or it be aid in the first place. So we always kind of go back to the point, if somebody's provided with an identity, what can this do for them? It can lower costs and so on. So yeah, talking about the SDGs, I think it's target 6.9, bringing remittance fees right down to three and a half. And blockchain gives the ability to do that, but it won't give the ability to do that if it's a once-off. We think it needs to be recurring in those transactions. If you look at, say, disaster response, there's some really cool things that I think 
blockchain will allow you to do. So if you you can build a smart contract, and we call this forecast-based financing, that we're probably going to deploy this in the US, hopefully in Q2, Q3, that if people have onboarded themselves to get a verified identity from the distributing partner, if X amount of rain falls in the 24-hour period, or if wind goes above a certain miles per hour, you can actually automate trigger payments to those wallets individually en masse to individuals. So you're lowering the cost of transaction distribution. You have your verified users. And okay, you can't stop a natural disaster happening, but you can equip people to be proactive instead of reactive. Now, that means in the bottom line for governments and organizations, you have a lot less operational costs. You can get to people a lot quicker. So for example, if you know a hurricane is going to hit your town, and you've got topped up, you can go and buy reinforcements for your house. So the damage is going to be less. I believe it's going to be in the future. It's going to be almost the DAO-based where the community can actually make donations or the community can, can donate their staking or imagine having, uh, I think this has been mentioned before by some people online that you can have different protocols donate a percentage of their fees every year. And then the community actually votes where that should go in any given time and given period. So Instead of waiting for governments or policymakers to come together, I think a community-driven approach is going to be game-changing for um, federal aid, natural um, disaster relief in-country and both internationally as well. And again, if people have verified identities, those one to two billion unbanked are now essentially, wouldn't say banked, but they have access to financial services they didn't have the opportunity before. And that just massively reduces costs because a person doesn't have to wait for money to get in, go to a local remittance service, queue up, and then spend five, six, ten percent on you know exchanging that for US dollars, whatever the actual currency is. So I think the problems are there and the problems are getting worse, especially around natural disasters. But I think there's going to be a massive opportunity to, especially for stable coins, to pay people out here instantaneously, super, super quickly and cheaply. So that's kind of been our remit is not focusing too much on the L1, but focusing on the use case, getting product market fit and bringing it to scale. That's what we've been really focusing on to solve the problems of natural disaster relief, remittances, and so on. I completely agree. All of that is very close to home. While I was um, serving on FEMA's National Advisory Council here in the U.S., the idea that you could use blockchains for parametric insurance and paying out claims based on sort of a, a weather-related event, and also the concept that a DAO is, in fact, very much emblematic of a mutual insurance structure where you share the losses and you share the, uh, you share the, the risks as well. And are you getting some traction here domestically in the U.S.? We saw not long ago with tornadoes, for example, in Kentucky and Circle, in partnership with Endowment, tried to leverage some of that to some of these technologies to expedite fundraising and sort of disaster assistance, even stateside. Are you getting some traction here in the U.S. as well? Yeah, we did a pilot about two years ago, ran for a year with St. Vincent de Paul Disaster Services in the U.S., and that was helping Victims of natural disasters get payments so they could actually go to stores, Walmarts and the likes to actually replenish what damage that was done to their house. So that was a really cool, successful pilot. We won an award for it. And by winning that award, it was, we were able to go to some of our clients who would be very old in their methodologies. You know, They're not data-driven. They're not technology-driven but we can reduce their operational complexity. So by having the, by our clients having a direct line to their end beneficiaries, 
they can actually prove their credentials to get insurance, right? Because some people can't take out insurance because of their, their postcode or they can't prove any documentation. So with our two clients in the US, we've managed to turn those pilots into two four-year contracts where we'll be the, the blockchain supplier, if you want to call it that. But essentially, we're building a wallet that will help them get to their end users quickly, help them provide wallets and potentially what the, the concept that we call volunteer to earn where people get rewarded for donating time, money, and so on. Uh, and we see our biggest opportunity in the, is, is in the U.S. And if you look at philanthropy in the U.S., it's actually bigger than remittances globally, which is a phenomenal figure. I think it's about $600 billion. It's, it's huge. So when you see, look at so many people trying to solve remittance cross-border payments, and then just in the U.S. alone, there's just so much money and there's so many people wanting to help but there's very inefficient ways. Like you have payments over here, you have identity over here, but none of it's correlated together to serve these organizations on the end beneficiaries in a way that you know we can do now. Makes sense. I want to come back to, uh, I think of this as kind of like the holy grail, you know, kind of question, which is, you know, clearly like going from uh, someone who's making a disbursement to a known recipient is really, really key. But at the same time, right, in a lot of places, you know, cash is the preferred medium of exchange. And it's not because people are are corrupt. I mean, there's always this assumption that like cash is just means that people are going to be corrupt. It's it's that it's it has the benefit of being a bearer instrument and people know it can be settled. It can't be taken away from them. And informal economies and other things, this is is obviously an extremely common thing. And I think behaviorally and psychologically for many people around the world in many communities, you know, cash is king and that's okay. And so I think, you know, when you look at digital currencies like USDC, it has attributes of digital cash. It exists as a digital asset on a blockchain. It can be transacted point to point between counterparties, you know, without an intermediary, right? The power of blockchains. And one knows that when they have it, they have it. It has that kind of that benefit of, of final settlement and security and privacy. So these are all important features that I think make it useful as a form of digital cash. I'm interested in your view on, I think, a lot of, of communities that are underbanked, the, the concept of having everyone on a monitored system and on a, on a system that has a whole identity layer. Is there a threshold? We have this in the existing AML regulations, right? You got $1,000 or $300 or whatever those, those thresholds are, these risk-based thresholds. Do you think on a principled level, it's important that individuals around the world should be able to just download a software wallet and do peer-to-peer digital cash transactions? And that would, you know, the disbursement can be efficient and verified, but then the circulation can actually be a digital cash equivalent kind of transaction experience uh, in, in those markets. And with, you know, chains like Algorand that make it, you know, a fraction of a penny and fast and cheap and so on, it, it starts to really unlock that where people aren't worrying about gas fees and things like that. But what do you think of that kind of issue? And, and, and do you maybe agree that kind of the holy grail is providing people everywhere with a digital cash equivalent kind of medium? Totally. And, and like, so when we speak with clients, we are not trying to push them a protocol or a technology. We're saying this can make your life easier and your end user's life easier. You always get asked that question about, 
you know, what's the offer from? How does a person actually get this cash? Especially if a person, let's say we, we look at the non-crypto natives, right? We're building yeah. solutions that were never solved in the first place in Web 2.0. And we're very careful that we want, don't want people to be excluded from Web 3.0. So, for example, we're, we're working with the guys at Visa. So a person may have a verified credential, download the wallet, get their ID verified, and they only have an allowance of $500 or $1,000, and it could be a virtual debit card, right? So a person can actually spend that in, in a local store, whatever the case may be. The tricky part is that I don't think you know we can solve or trying to solve is, depending on some of those countries, the regulation for persons to get a basic bank account is based on a tiered KYC approach, and, and, and that's restriction on kind of banking and web two out on and so on but you can't forget it you still have to you know be aware of it if somebody wants to get into the financial system our view and you know our vision of what we want to happen is people own their own data they own their own identity and they own their own money so people a person's wallet becomes like their own mini bank and there's lots of things to solve there in terms of user experience how does a person person cash out and so on so for example what we're doing in the Philippines is a person could receive uh, Philippine peso, USDC, or I'll go into their wallet, but they want to cash out at some point. You know, it's not for us to say what they should or shouldn't do with their money. You know, we don't play along those lines. But for example, in the Philippines, people can actually cash out in pawn shops, which is a, we weren't aware of this at the start, right? So now a person will have money in their wallet. They we want to allow them to exchange USDC to Philippine peso, and then they can actually take that out in the actual local pawn shop. And so if there is that going to be that ability of a person having a wallet with an identity, there needs to be an in-wallet exchange mechanism that will allow them to go from one currency to another that they can actually cash out or off from. Uh, because otherwise, you're going to have to bring in third-party vendors, third-party players. And they're the problems that we're trying to solve. And I don't think blockchain is that far just yet because you know, there's still KYC and AML rules and regulations and the changes in different countries. So it's very difficult to build one something that fits all, especially if you want to play on the right side of regulation, especially the end users, right? You can't make their life more difficult. We're building to make their life easier and, and lower fees and so on. So it's, it's, it's kind of a difficult one to ask. We're trying to incorporate these problems. Yeah. I'm trying to build the solutions for them with that in mind for the end users that they did. They don't need to, you know, remember 34, 24 yeah. C password because it won't work. You just forget about it. Right. So having the ability that you can have one soft virtual debit cards within the wallets, can people actually take money out at ATMs if they're NFC on their chip will allow them at special vending machines and so on. So they're the type of things that we have in our radar that we're looking at. But again, it goes back to there has to be the US dollar equivalent for everybody because yeah. it's what we understand and know internationally, whatever country they're in. So I think building these solutions without the stable coin components doesn't really make sense from our research and how we're actually engaging. So we're trying to speak as many of the potential end users before we're building it. It's worked well for us. And that's where we're going from pilot. We're able to scale right now. So we don't have all the answers yet, but it's trying to bridge the world from fiat Web 2.0 to Web 3.0 with the user in the middle and bringing their own data, financial history. And, and again, it kind of goes back to having a social credit profile that they own and control. I think it's going to be key in the next few years. Well, Joseph, it's uh, tremendous to see the progress you're making. And we're excited to be partnering with you and, and supporting what you're trying to accomplish. It's been a great conversation. 
and uh, we'll be excited to have you back on when, you know, I, I know uh, in over the next year or whatever it is, you're, you're going to be making even more progress. So I think for us, from a mission perspective, when we think about the kind of fundamental mission of Circle to kind of raise global economic prosperity through the frictionless exchange of financial value, there's a lot of ways that can be realized. But clearly, these humanitarian dimensions are so fundamental and sort of from an impact perspective, we're really, really passionate about it. And uh, and I know for a lot of people who are getting into this industry, the promise of financial inclusion, the promise of the kind of global ubiquity of this is, is what brings a lot of people into this industry. And so to have an entrepreneur such as yourself and a firm such as yourself doing what you're doing, it's really an honor for us to be able to work with you. So I want to you know, thank you and, and thanks for joining the show today. Thanks. I appreciate your time, the opportunity to speak and, and spread the word about it. So uh, yeah, keep up the great work there as well. And Dante, really great to connect again. So hopefully we can meet you in person uh, sometime this year. Let's see. That's the plan. That's the plan, yeah. Thank you, Joseph. Cheers, everybody. Have a good day. Bye.